Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, it's good to be with you today. Thank you for being here at Bible Study. I, I'm sorry that I'm starting a little bit late. I'm going to try and always be a little more timely. But if you have your prayer before the study of Scripture, let's, let's begin with prayer this morning. Ask the Lord to illumine our hearts. So let us pray together. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We are continuing our closing chapters of the Gospel of John, chapter 20 verse 19 today. I looked at the balance of the book, and, and I, as best I can lay out the break in the sections that I think I want to teach them in, I think we have about five weeks left. Uh, and now I can't remember if that means with including today or after today, but it's somewhere around five weeks left based on how we'll break it up. So we'll be looking at... Uh, a future study to start after that, but the Gospel of John's been one of our longest ones. Uh, anytime you do the Gospels, they're just so full. Uh, one, of, one of the longest studies we've had. Not exactly sure yet what to go for next, but praying about it still. But we are really coming uh, up to the end of this book, and it's fascinating. This morning, we're only going to look at five verses, okay, 19 through 23. And there are three words that I put on the board uh, that will be thematic to what we study today. The first one is the word shalom, which we recognize as Hebrew. The second one is the verb, uh, the word apostolos, which is Greek, and emphosio, which is Greek. And we'll we'll talk about those as they come up. They're thematic to our study today. Uh, we're following. Remember last week, Mary Magdalene had just went back to the disciples and told them all that Jesus had told her as he had appeared to her 
and and you know she was the first to see the the risen Lord in that sense, and he was talking to her. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that we learn from that passage is it, it says that Mary went went back. She she was gone to go back and and talk to the apostles. Tell them all. It says Mary, I think it was verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the apostles all that she had seen. And and, uh, so Mary's often given the title, uh, the Apostle to the Apostles. The Apostle to the Apostles. That's what Mary Magdalene was known by in the early church. Why? Because she, she wasn't one of the 12 apostles. We think apostles... There's a couple of words that describe all these followers of Jesus. The disciples, that's a common word we're used to as disciples. Sometimes we hear the 12 disciples. Sometimes we hear, uh, you know, the disciples. But a a disciple, of course, that literally means a student, a follower, uh, one who's learning from another. Jesus had many disciples. Way back in our study in John chapter 6, we learned at the end of that study, after Jesus teaching about his body and blood, that we remember it said, and many of the disciples turned away. So, and they did not follow him anymore. The, the number got fewer and fewer as Jesus' teaching got more specific and drew closer to the cross, if you will. But at that point, you know, they were still his disciples. The 12 were his disciples. Mary was one of his disciples. You know, there were several disciples. It wasn't just 12. But in the end, at the end of this gospel, we will see today that there are 12 apostles. Now, we have 11 in the room with Jesus, basically, because Judas had left, you know, in the betrayal. So we have 11 in this upper room experience that we're going to read about here with, uh, with the risen Lord. And Mary, it says when she went back to, to tell them, that was kind of, she was sent back to tell them. She is, uh, She's being an apostle to these apostles. And why do we call them apostles? Well, let's read about it, and we'll talk about it. Now, let's let's start with uh, verse 19. I'm going to read through verse 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Sorry, I have to turn my page there and I let go of it. And then Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Stop there. Let's stop there. So much in here to talk about. Let's begin with this thought of why, again, John gives us little details. Why is it important that John tells us Now, on the first day of the week, what day is it? Sunday. Sunday. Even more specifically, it is 
the evening of, it's evening, that's correct. And more specifically, it is the evening of the resurrection. Okay, this is, we're still on the first day of the week, okay? The evening of the resurrection. Now, we find the apostles now gathered together. Peter and John had ran earlier to the tomb. We find them all kind of huddled back together again in a room. It doesn't tell us they're in the upper room. It doesn't tell us that. We're assuming that because that's where they were, you know, three nights ago on the, the Holy <coughs> Thursday right before the cross. Um, and none of them really just lived right there in Jerusalem. You know, they'd come for the experience with Christ, of course, and it was the time of the season of Passover. So we're, we're believing they might still be in the upper room. But we don't know that for a fact. Because the text doesn't tell us they're in the upper room. Google. But Google it. Yeah. <laughs> now, so they're in there, but it tells us, John's careful, he tells us, and the doors are shut for what? Fear. Fear of the Jews. So remember, we, we saw Peter and John run out, kind of throwing their fear aside, running to where the tomb was, knowing there's guards there because they're so intrigued by this thought that the tomb is empty. But now they're back together. Reality's settled in. A little bit of fear here. You know, they still don't really understand what is going on. They still believe that there could be danger to them because they are Jesus' followers. And so they're gathered together in fear. Now, if we look at that verb that tells us the door was shut, we need to see it in the Greek. I didn't write it on the board. It's just a little word called, I think it's called klio. K-L-A-I-O, and I may be saying that wrong because I'm not great at pronouncing Greek, but the object is it's the same word used in Acts chapter 5 when it says the apostles were imprisoned and the doors were locked. When When the officials came back and found the cell was empty and the doors were locked. So they're not just in there just, hey, close the door behind you. They're in there with locked doors, and they are afraid. And John wants to make that clear. So it's nighttime. No Jesus anymore. He's been crucified. They're behind locked doors, and they're afraid. There's a, a real metaphor for us to see. That's darkness. That's life without Christ. That's life with no peace. That's life with no hope. That's life with no certainty. And that's what they're feeling. Okay. So let's put ourselves into that frame of mind to see what they might have been feeling. And it says Jesus came and stood among them. He just appeared among them. Doesn't say he knocked on the door. Doesn't say they opened the door. It's interesting that the door was locked he appeared before him. That's right. There's no way he opened that door from the outside. What John's communicating to us again here. And Jesus stood among them. How'd he get there? Because the risen Christ, this is Jesus, the God-man, our Savior, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, who is no longer bound by time and space because he is glorified. And he can appear wherever he wants to appear. I know that boggles our mind. Some people have said that, you know, in the early days there was a a heresy of teaching about Jesus that said he was a ghost. 
you know, people thought, well, you see, he just walks through walls or whatever. He's a ghost. That's just silliness, okay? That was a heresy called docetism, I believe was the name of it. Docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism. Jesus is not a ghost. He is fully, and we're going to see John prove that. And he very well could be writing some of these thoughts against those heresies. He wants people to understand truth. And here is this the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ, standing among them. And in standing among them, his first words to them, his first words after the last time he saw them at the cross, you know, those that saw him at the cross, but his last words from the cross, of course, were, it is finished. Okay, it is finished, you know. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, Father. Now his first words are what? Peace. Peace. Peace be with you. I want us to unpack that a little bit. The word peace in the Hebrew is the one we're most familiar with here, okay, is shalom, right? You've always heard that word, right? Shalom. What do you think shalom means? Yeah, Wes, you said... Like it's a common greeting. Whenever you go to Israel, they say shalom, both and coming and going. Did you notice that when you were there? Some of you. It's coming. It's hello and goodbye. Okay, kind of like in Hawaii. I've never been to Hawaii, but aloha is hello and goodbye. You know, and I don't know the Hawaiian languages, so I don't know exactly all that that unpacks. But in Hebrew, a careful study of the word in Hebrew. It's often translated as peace. Okay. But just what is peace? You know, let's try and wrap our minds around that. What What is peace? You know, people use that word all the time. People wish for peace. Basically saying peace be with you. Yeah, in, in the ancient liturgies of the church and still spoken in liturgical churches today, there's a point in the worship where they stop and say, the, 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 the leader of the worship service says, Peace be with you. And the people respond, and with your spirit. Or, and also with you, depending on what church you're in. And with your spirit. It's kind of like today, we always say, have a good day. Okay. It's kind of like that. Okay. Let's, let's unpack it a little and see, see how much it's like. And then the, the pastor or the priest or whoever's leading turns around and says, now let us offer one another a sign of peace. And then you're supposed to turn to your neighbor in the pew by you or near you and, and greet them with the words, peace. And, and so like you're saying, Dennis, maybe, how are you doing? Have a good day. You know, in our culture, we think that's what it's about, but it's way, way more than that. Could it mean rest? Rest? Good connotation. He, absolute contentment, no fear. Absolute contentment, no fear. Look at the context. They were they were in fear, weren't they? And now Jesus is in their midst. And when G, here's what I want us to hear this morning: with Jesus, there is perfect peace. There is no fear. There is the absence of fear. Okay, if we feel fear in our lives. We're Christians here this morning. This is a Christian Bible study. Okay? If we, as Christians, if we feel fear in our lives, we have to really take a quick inventory and say, what is this about? What is this feeling? If Christ is with me, if Christ is with me, who can be against me? 
Why, do I, why should I be afraid? John said in verse chapter 4, let not your hearts be troubled. All of this idea, I'm telling you, we live way below. We live way below the blessing of what we can live as Christians, or what Christ wants us to live as Christians, in peace. A peace, Paul says in his letters, in the Philippian letter specifically, St. Paul says, may the peace that passes our understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we go way back to Isaiah, I love Isaiah. One of my favorite verses, the prophet Isaiah, Old Testament, chapter 26, verse 3. Anybody know it? I don't really know very many scriptures by actual verse and chapters, so I'm not trying to look like I know a lot there. Sorry about that. I don't really know that many. I'm like, I'm more like, well, I know it's back there somewhere. But that's one that I memorized a long time ago. You know what it says? It says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. That's right. You can finish it for me. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Okay? That was 26.3, Isaiah 26.3. Somebody can double check me on that if I'm wrong. It's, it's uh, you know, the older you get, the more you have a tendency to mix the numbers up. But uh, pretty sure that's right. It's like prayer. Isaiah saying thou, okay, it's like talking to God. Thou, meaning God. Thou, God will keep him, himself, whoever, in perfect peace. When his mind is stayed on thee. What does it mean to have our mind stayed on God? It means to continually, continuously, I like that word, continuously reflect on the fact that God is with us. What is the name, one of the names for Jesus? Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. What did Emmanuel mean in the Hebrew? God with us. Okay. There's a perfect peace when Christ is with us. And, and that's what he wanted them to feel. That's what he wanted to hear. He's going to unpack that more as we talk, okay? But this, I want you to start thinking about this perfect peace that comes only, only with the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, they had his physical presence in the room with them. We don't have that today. But we can still have that peace because Christ transcends time space. Martin Luther, in some of his writings, the great reformer, talked about the ubiquitous nature of Jesus Christ. That's kind of a fun word, ubiquitous. What does ubiquitous mean? It's a fun word. I love words, you know, it just rolls up when it just rolls off your tongue. Ubiquitous. What does ubiquitous mean? Everywhere. It's just every, all present, everywhere present, Okay. There is an ancient prayer. It's part of my, my daily morning prayers that I love to recite that I want to share with you. Uh, um, I'm used to reading it, so I may get it wrong here. O heavenly king, the giver of life, who are all places and filling all things. I love that. Who are all places, ubiquitous. Jesus Christ is ubiquitous. He's everywhere. And he fills everything including, and especially us. And so his peace is with us. So when we feel fear, we have to ask ourselves, why are we afraid? Um, 
I have a good friend who came and spoke to our church a few years ago. Some of you will remember him. He was a uh, kind of a motivational uh, Christian leader. He worked with Brooke in some of her training in, in theater and stuff. His name was Yaku Boyens. Some of you might remember, remember a Sunday morning a few years ago when Yaku came to talk with us. South African, has a kind of a cool little accent. Uh, Yaku, I, I will still remember him saying this in part of his training. He, Brooke was a part of a, a program called um, uh, Actors and Models Talent for Christ. And it was a training school. We drove her down every month to Dallas, go through weekend intensive trainings for people that might someday be in television or entertainment or anything and how to understand those gifts in light of being a Christian and to maintain your faith and to, you know, it's a powerful training. And Yaku, this great guy, great friend, he said this, I'll never forget it. He looked at the students that weekend and he said, fear is a lie from the devil. He said, and then quickly follow, he said, danger is real. There are times when we can be in danger, and danger is real. But fear is a lie from the devil. What have we to fear? If Christ is with us, Scripture says, if Christ is with us, who can be against us? What have we to fear? You know, Jesus himself said, don't fear man who can take your life. Fear God who can put you in hell, you know? We really don't have anything to fear. So think about that. I, I, I just want us to get the fact that Jesus is showing them his peace. Peace is not the absence of fear. It's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence. That's a negative thought. Peace is the absence of conflict or something, or the absence of danger. That's a negative thought. What, what I want us to see is that peace is a positive thought. Peace is the presence of Jesus. And he is always with us. He is everywhere present and filling all things. Okay. So as he says this to him, it says when he, in verse 20, when he had said this to them, he showed them his hands and his side. Nail prints, right? Spear print on his side. They didn't ask. He just showed it to them. Why did he show it to them? So that they would believe. They needed to know it was really him. He knew that they were doubtful, probably. I mean, this is a... And he doesn't quite look the same. We don't really understand what he looks like, you know. We will one day when we meet him face to face, won't we? Yeah, that's that's an exciting thought. One day we will meet Jesus face to face. But until then, we really don't understand what he looks like. And because he's glorified. he's Mary didn't recognize him either until he spoke her name. We're going to see in the next chapter, the final chapter of John, they don't recognize him when he speaks to them and calls to them from the boat, you know, uh, when he's on shore. We'll get, don't want to get ahead of myself. But this idea that he shows them his hands and his side, there's only one person that would have those marks. And there's only one person that would have them glorified. These are, let's think about the wounds of Christ for a minute. Let's think about the wounds of Christ. Now, his hands, his feet, his side. Uh, when you when you and I get our glorified bodies, okay, when we get to heaven and get our glorified bodies after this earthly life is through, when the, at the end of all days, when there is the final resurrection, we're not going to have our wounds. You know, if any, anybody here had open heart surgery, you got a big scar right down your chest, don't you? You know, you're not going to have those wounds. 
because we're going to be glorified. We're going to be perfect bodies. So, yes, go ahead, jump in. What about those that believe that they get the stigmata? That's a great question. Um, uh, that's a deep that What Wes is asking about is the stigmata. Let, hold, hold that thought about the glorified wounds. Somebody remind me of that, okay? And I'll come back to that. The stigmata, for those of you who don't know, it is a phenomena that people have said that they receive the wounds of Christ. Like people in prayer or in, 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 in great uh, ang- senses of prayer and, and, and have, have actually started to bleed from their wrists. Uh, the mark of Christ as a, as a and, and I can't disprove it. I don't think anyone can scientifically disprove it. Okay, uh, but it seems to be a because it's been scientifically observed. But it seems to be one of those things, kind of like I so identifying with Jesus in his death, the death of self, that they just received that as as some type of. Uh, it, it's a phenomenon. You know, it's kind of like also, what about people that have seen visions? Uh, you know, you, you just, you can't really disprove it. Um, but it, it is fascinating to me. Um, I, I do want to say this about the glorified wounds. If you and I aren't going to have our wounds in heaven, why does Jesus have his? I don't think we should think of them as wounds. Mm-mm. I think we should think of them as glorified trouble. They're no longer bleeding. They're not oozing. You think of a wound, you think of something that's open and bleeding and oozing and blood and whatever, right? They're, but they're there. They're permanently there. They're, they're like the trophies of his, they're the trophy marks of his gift to us, of his death for us. And they're forever a part of his glorification. And they're forever proving of who he is. And there, there's no reason for them to be gone because he is glorified for all time, every wound. He's taken every wound of ours upon himself in glory. So I see this a fascinating thought. Why did Jesus still have those marks of his crucifixion? And I think they're for a good purpose. So yeah, and he didn't have all that. That's probably why they didn't recognize him and they doubted too, because when they buried him and the last time they'd seen him, he was barely recognizable in the flesh. And now here's the... So beaten, battered, and bruised. Yes, yeah. and so here's this wonderful angelical body. Mm-hmm. Well, let's think through this thought about uh, how this leads them into, into verse uh, 20. As he showed them this, Jesus, it says here, as he showed them his hands and his side, it says their response was they were glad. They were glad. I think glad is a poor choice. I mean, glad, in our English, glad just feels, hey. You know, I know there's a song, he has made me glad, he has made me glad, I will rejoice for he is. You know, I, you know it's a good song. But I, I just, I, I think they were overjoyed. Joy, rejoiced. Overjoyed, overjoyed is, is kind of my, that's my choice of words. They were overjoyed, you know. In exaltation, I just, this, can you even, imagine? nobody's ever seen a person come back from the dead, and this is Jesus, he's right there with them again, you know, all fear that they've ever had is now washed away, because he really is alive, Mary wasn't kidding, wow, they're overjoyed, ecstatic, there's a great word, ecstatic, uh, so, 
And remember, I want us to remember something back in John chapter 16. Let's remind some of the words of Jesus just a few chapters ago. I'll turn there real quick. And I want you to hear these words again from Jesus before the cross. John chapter 16, verse 22. Therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice. And your joy, no one will take from you. <laughs> John 16, 22. John 20, verse 20. It's come true. They now rejoice in such a way. Sorrow is gone. They, and, and I love this. Jesus taught, no one can take it from you. No one can take it from you. No one can. Do we believe that? No one can take our joy. You know, that's something I, I try to be really careful with in talking to my to my kids. You know, when it's a, it's a natural human emotion to say, oh, you, you know, in, in conflict or in confrontation or in, com, you know, confrontational conversation, it's, it's so naturally instinctive and human to say, well, you make me so mad, you know. Or, or you really make me this, or you make me that, or you, that person makes me, or they, I, they make me feel terrible, or whatever. You know, I said, hold it, time out. No one can make you feel anything that you don't consent your will to. Okay? You're allowing them to make you feel mad. You're allowing them to make you feel inferior. You're allowing them to, you know, see, there's a consent of the will. And Jesus is saying, no one can take your joy. This joy that I'm bringing because of my shalom, because my presence with you is utter peace. I'm with you. As he's going to tell them at the ascension in 40 days, he's going to tell them, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. No one can take your joy. Remember that. No one can take your joy. So, see Jesus' own words coming true there. Now, he continues. So Jesus says to them again, these are some fascinating words. Verse 21 and 22 are so fascinating. We are going to unpack these verses. It's going to take us the next half hour to unpack these verses. And that's why we're only looking at five verses today, because these are too good to pass over. And I maintain that Few of us have probably ever really unpacked these words because it's not part of their, they're not part of our tradition. Okay. Um, this next Greek word on the board, emphosio, emphosio, is going to be an important word. We're going to talk about that. Let me read those words again. Verse 21. Jesus said again, I like the word again. This is Jesus reminding them. He said again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Okay, stop and think through that with me. This is apostolos. Now they are becoming apostles. The Greek word here is apostolos. As the Father sent me, Jesus was sent by the Father on his mission to earth to redeem us, to reconcile us. So now I am sending you. How is he sending them? Just exactly the same way the Father sent him. So what is their mission? Same mission as Jesus. They're to be Christ's. 
to the world. They're to be as Christ to the world. Christian. What does the word Christian mean? To be Christ-like. It literally means what? Little Christian. Little Christ, I mean, I'm sorry. Little Christ. Want to name the name Christian? It means to be a little Christ. These were Jews. These were became believers known as Messianic Jews. And eventually, Scripture tells us that in the city of Antioch, they were first called Christians. Something about them was so like Jesus of Nazareth, the great Christ that everybody had been talking about, that the people of the town of Antioch began to call them Christians. They're little Christs. These people are amazing. Wow. So that's their mission. That's what they're sent. Even as the Father, even so I send you, just as the Father sent me. In other words, you no longer have the calling to fulfill your own will. Your, did, Jesus' mission was not to fulfill his will. His mission was to fill the Father's will. You know, we saw his human will in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Don't send me to the cross if it's possible. That was his humanity talking, his human will. But his mission was always to submit his will to the Father's, to teach us. That is our mission, to submit our will to the Father's will. And that's the mission of those apostles, to submit their will to the Father's will. They're going to go out and be Christ to the world. And us, by their extension. Okay, This is 2,000 years later. That's our mission. That's the mission of everyone who chooses to become like Christ. It is to share Christ with the world, to be Christ to the world. Now, when he had said these words, verse 22, he breathed on them. He breathed on them. Now, I'm going to spare you the example because I have pretty strong coffee breath, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to walk up to anyone right here and just breathe on you, okay? We would be repulsed by that, okay? <laughs> But, but, but we must see this word, this Greek word, emphasile. It's it's rare verb. It's a very rare verb. It's, it's used maybe three times in the Bible. And the other two are in the Old Testament. And the first one we see it used is, it, we'd, we'd be reading a Greek Old Testament, okay? <laughs> because it's a Greek word. But in Genesis chapter 2, in the creation story, when God formed the man of clay, and says, breathed into his nostrils. Okay? And in Ezekiel chapter 37, when there was the valley of the dry bones, and God literally breathed into them, it says, new life. Okay? There is this connotation in this word that Jesus literally, physically, as God, breathed into these human men his breath. In Hebrew, the ruach, the mighty breath of God, that is the source of life. The breath of God is the source of life. Withdraw breath, you withdraw life. Right? You know, we know that in medical terms. Nothing lives without breath. Now, he's breathing into them. They're already alive. Why do they need this breath? 
I like to call, you know what I call this? This is just me. This is a Bradism or whatever you want to call it. This is, I call this the apostolic ordination. You know, uh, we ordain people to the Christian ministry by the laying on of hands, and we know that they did that, and Paul talks about that with Timothy and Titus and the laying on of hands. But I like to call this their apostolic ordination because he's giving them apostolic power. He's given them power. The breath of God is power, okay? And he's gonna, and he's very specific. He's gonna give them a certain power in this ordination. Now remember, everybody gets power at Pentecost, right? Pentecost was the coming of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, we could say that these apostles have two two Pentecosts. Okay, the first one is just the twelve of them, or it's, it's actually eleven in the room. Okay. They get this apostolic Pentecost of ordination because Jesus has something to teach them here that they will use later after their Pentecostal experience. Okay, the, the Pentecostal one is the manifestation. Okay, so between now, tonight, in this upper room, the first day of the resurrection, and Pentecost, which is like 50 days later, okay, between then, they're not using this power. But after Pentecost, they're going to use it because they're going to realize it. Okay. But what is it the power he's given them? You look at the text. You tell me, what power did he give them? What mission? Say it. The power to forgive sin. Wow. How much do we really even think of that? We are so, we are, we are Protestant Christians. And you know I hate that word because I'm really not protesting anything. <laughs> but it's a label, it's a moniker, it's a moniker. There were people that did once. There, there's a, it's a moniker that we have to wear on a, for, on a, on a what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, unfortunately, I don't like that moniker. We're Protestant Christians. I'm just Christian, you know. But because there are such things as Protestants who at one point in time reformed, tried to reform the Western church in the Middle Ages, there were abuses, there were things wrong with the Western church in the Middle Ages that the church refused to change. And thus, those people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others felt they had no choice but to just separate. They didn't try to separate. They tried to reform, but they did. And what happened in the Western world was we ended up with many, many, many churches, many, many Protestants, if you will. But interestingly enough, the original, if I can call them original Protestants, the Lutheran, the Lutherans, okay, and 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 the uh, the ones who the, the Anglicans who come later, they're not really part of the Protestant Reformation as say. They come a little later. You know, there was the Protestant Reformation on the continent of Europe of Luther and, and Calvin, and then the more radical ones. It seems like the, the more people began to reform, the more radical they got. Radical meaning what they reformed, what they threw away of the faith, okay, of the church, of the things the church did and the way the church lived out its life. But Luther kept the thought of the church, the ministers of the church, the representatives of the apostles 
forgiving sin. We know it today as the act or sacrament of confession. And as Protestants, we, we, we hear that word and we think, well, that's not right. Oh, we don't need to do that. We, we need to just confess our sins to God, straight to God. What's all this business? I mean, you, 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 could, you can admit it here. We're all friends this morning. You grew up, didn't you? You grew up hearing that was wrong to confess your sins to a priest. You grew, we, we all did. We all grew up that way. Until I started going into the Catholic, except Wes, because Wes grew up Episcopal, and that's part of that Church of England. That's part of that Church of England thing where I'm talking about those certain, there were certain Protestants that kept it, okay? Uh, they've always had that sacrament. Um, but, and then, of course, I learned about it when I was in the Catholic Church, you know? And, 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 and I want us to just unpack it. We've got about 20 minutes here. I want, I want us to hear what is he saying here? What is Jesus, why does he do this? In, 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 receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What does retained mean? Kept. They're, they're held. They're not forgiven. Okay. Uh, let's think about this in the apostolic mission. What do we know about the apostles from the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus gave to them a power? He talked about the power that they would have. It was called the power to bind and loose. Do you remember that? <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18. In 16, he gives the power to bind and loose directly to the apostle Peter. And in Matthew 18, he gives it to all the apostles. I know that Roman Catholics got hung up on the thought that he gave to Peter the keys to the kingdom in verse 16. But in 18, it says he didn't give everybody else the keys. But don't get hung up on that. I really don't think that means Peter has absolute power. Okay. And, and even though that came to mean that over centuries of time, it didn't. nobody thought that back then. It just meant that Peter was in charge. You know? Hey, I used to have the keys to the church here. And trust me. I wasn't in charge. <laughs> I used to have the keys to the store I managed, but I wasn't in charge. Okay, And I didn't have supreme juridical authority for that business either. Okay, it was a, But Peter did have a place of authority, and the early church recognized that. They always recognized that. Still do. Now, so... It's, it's not about, it's the power to bind and loose. And here we see them, Jesus is giving them a specific area in which they're going to have to practice the power to bind and loose. This idea of forgiving sins. Well, I just yeah. thought that when they received the Holy Spirit, you know, they gave them the power, but I think he also gave them knowledge, spiritual knowledge. Yes. So that they kind of know what his real reason for them, and they, they had more determination and more, uh, I don't know, I just know. No, you're, you're correct on that. One of the things, we go back to John 16, it's either 16 or 17, it talks about Jesus said, I have a lot more things to tell you, but you can't handle them right now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, all knowledge. Okay, So that they, in their apostolic office, would have the gift of knowledge. They would be able to know when a person was repentant and when they weren't. Okay? Now, 
How did this work its way out in the early church, this idea of confession? But we, we commonly call it confession. I think a better name for it, the Anglican Church, in the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Church called it, ne- never really tried, never officially used the word confession. They called it the sacrament of reconciliation. The reconciliation of a penitent. We're all penit- penitents. Are pe- penitents are people that are sorry for their sins, okay, and that, that admit they're sorry for their sins. And so it's reconciling them in their faith. So I want to really challenge you, okay? I'm sorry, I'm going to just say it. This is, I know this is challenging to some of your Protestant core beliefs, okay? I can't find anywhere in Scripture that tells me to specifically confess my sins privately to God. I've looked, I can't find it. If you find it, please let me know. Uh, lots of lots of general scriptures about confession, you know, confess, you re- repent, repent and believe, repent, 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 all over. Mm-hmm. But nowhere that specifically instructively says, and go into your quiet closet like Jesus said about prayer, and make sure you confess your sins directly to your Father. It doesn't say that. I can't find it. But I do find it says confess to one another. James chapter 5. James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to each other. This is how the early church worked this out. The understanding was that human beings, being sinful, need to release the burden of our sinfulness to someone. Because it is so easy to live in denial. It is so easy to live in denial. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, don't, do not go out of here saying, Brad said we don't have to confess to God. No, I'm not saying that. Not saying that at all. In fact, I don't believe the Catholic Church even teaches that. I was always taught when I was Catholic that you confessed to God in, and had to have true repentance the night before you went to your confession or before you went to your confession, that you went to the sacrament of confession to receive the grace of that minister saying, you are forgiven. That was what I was taught. Okay, But somehow, through the great walls that went up after that Reformation, it was not, not seen that way by so many. Now, the Catholics are, have, the Roman Catholic Church had its own faults in the, in the Middle Ages. The reason this became such an issue is because they abused the sacrament. Not everyone, but many. Many priests in the Middle Ages were known for abusing the sacrament of confession. They would, you know, well, you know, you could, well, let's see, what was that murder? Okay, that would be this many pounds or rubies or dollars or whatever, you know. Reading here, it says Constantine started that. The Emperor Constantine in the 300s, okay. So the early, the early church, here's what we know the early church did. We have records of the early church saying, that in worship services, whether, you know the first worship services were in living rooms, right? In houses, house churches, okay, in Jerusalem, and spread out from there. They didn't really have church buildings until Constantine, okay, 300 years later. But in those house churches, they would part of the part of the service was confession. People stood and confessed their sins to one another. Well, that's humbling. 
wow. much easier to just confess to God alone than it is to say, Jerry, I'm sorry, I such and such. So yeah, much totally. easier. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. But it, and if it's you... Better. <laughs> it's better, though. But it's, yeah. but it's freeing. Yes. But if you have another believer, they can be your blind side and help you. Where two or more gathered, God can... Right. But you better be careful. Because what the early church learned was it's not necessarily safe to always confess our sins in public. Because we can't trust everybody. And the more the gospel spread and the more... I mean, the gospel was first among communities of friends and believers and like people of the faith and of the community, of the synagogue, of the temple. But as the church grew and more and more just pagans and non-believers and people came in and needed to be instructed in the faith, well... You didn't know them from Adam, to use a phrase, you know. Confess your sins in front of them, and next thing you know, they're telling somebody else down the street, and it just got ugly. Okay? Because another tendency in human beings besides sin is gossip, which is a sin. <laughs> so so what? It, 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 I think the history of the church reflects that it was in mercy, that it was in mercy that they began to do confession in private, but always with the priest always with the pastor, always with the shepherd, okay, who was and is believed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God through the breath of Christ received in the ordination. We've talked about it before, the idea of the apostles had their successors, and they laid hands on them, and then they laid hands on them, and then they laid hands on them, and 2,000 years later, we're still laying hands on people called to be shepherds for Christ. Okay? So, I know this is This is mind-boggling to some of you, this idea that Scripture actually teaches us to confess to a pastor. And I, I will. I've always loved. This is not original with me, but I love. I, re, I quote him, and I, I can't think of the Casey. His name was Casey. He was a, a priest, a Catholic priest. Father something Casey. He was a leader of a organization, an, an order of priests, and he was a pretty good preacher. I kind of had a few videotapes of him in the old videotape days, and he said this. He said about this scripture. I just always remember because it stuck to me. He said. People, it's not just about confessing your sins to your neighbor. It's about confessing your sins to your pastor, your priest. Because these are the apostles, and that's the office they held, and then their successors. And how do I know that it means to verbally confess? Because nowhere in there does it say Jesus gave them the power to read minds. Yeah. I like that. Jesus didn't give them the power to read minds. Okay, Somebody's got to be... If they're going to retain somebody's sins and or forgive their sins. Now, somebody's got to be confessing. Now, the idea, is that, is that? I don't know, I'm asking you. No, that's not him. That's oh. not him. He was a younger man than that. I was curious. Okay. Um, so here's my point. The point of all of this today is to understand that in the history of the church, the church has always had the grace of reconciling penitence. Through confession. And I'm going to tell you it's natural. I, When I was served as pastor here in, the, in this church, as a pastor in this church, numerous times people 
burdened by sin, would make an appointment to come sit down with me and confess. They didn't call it confession. They didn't think of it as confession. But trust me, it was confession. Okay? And my role was to place my hand on their shoulder and say, the Lord forgives you. If I truly believe they were repentant. When the Protestant Reformation came and this went out the window, it was one of the first things that went out the window because there was so much power held up into it. I mean, if, if, you, if you were part of the medieval church and the church told you, I'm sorry, we're not going to forgive your sins. Yeah. You didn't give enough money this year. Uh. Wow, that's hurtful. That's, it also can ruin your life. I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Things like this really happened. It, it wasn't necessarily rampant everywhere in the world, but it, it happened. Okay, It happened enough that it was just one of the many things that led to Reformation. And I'm telling you that when it was thrown out the window, it's no surprise to me at all that within a couple of hundred years of churches living without it, we saw an evangelical revival that called people to the front of the church to an altar to kneel down and do what? Confess. Because they needed to unburden their souls. The altar call was really nothing more than a confessional, if you really want to think about it. You with me? Now I want to blow your mind even further. Got six minutes left. Okay? Got six minutes left. 2014, went to a conference. Conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called the Praxis Conference. I've probably told this story before, but be kind, because when you get to my age, you tell the same stories over and over. The Praxis Conference. The Praxis Conference. Praxis is a Greek word for practice, the, pra- the way we work things out. Okay. There's a spiritual conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for the charismatic church movement. This was a conference of charismatics from all over the country. People from Pentecostal and charismatic seminaries, thinkers, preachers, talkers, I mean, all kinds of things. And there's much more I could tell you about that conference, but the, the, here's what blew my mind. The whole, the whole theme of the conference was liturgy. Rediscovering worship. Liturgy as worship. Y- y'all know what I'm talking about? What, lit- liturgy? Okay, liturgy, to many Protestants, liturgy is a bad word, okay, because that's those churches that are supposedly stuffy and staid, and they just go in every week and repeat the same words, okay? Liturgy. The the liturgia is a Greek word that means a common act, okay? The common work of the people. That's liturgia. The thought is that throughout Christian history, from the beginning, they followed liturgies. In the Old Testament, they followed liturgies. Do you think the priest, the, the, the Levite priests every week just got up there and made up their own words? No. They followed a prescribed ritual of work, okay, before God. And so liturgy was this idea. That's how Christians worshipped in liturgy, okay? There were times for singing of praise, but they had certain prayers. They all prayed together, like the Lord's Prayer. Or that what I said earlier about that... The, the, the pastor says, the Lord be with you, and you say, I'm with your spirit. That's following liturgy. Okay. 
So if liturgy is kind of a form to something, a common, the common work that we do together. So here were these, I mean, who could be less liturgical than charismatics in, in Pentecostals? Huh? I mean, even the Church of the Nazarene is quasi-liturgical. In the, I mean, I told you about a service where I was up there with robes and doing things, and we prayed the creed together, and we do. I mean, we have in the in the Nazarene church there is this ability to be more liturgical if you want to be. They leave it up to the church and the pastor to develop the style of the service. You know, um, you can go online, go online and Google the word sacramental Nazarenes. You'll find it. It's a whole organization of pastors that think more liturgically and sacramentally. General superintendent of the church, Jess Middendorf, wrote a whole manual called the Church Rituals Handbook. Mm-hmm. And in it were service orders of liturgy that I've actually used here in this church in smaller services. And I've used prayers from them at a different times in, in like the, when we celebrate the Holy Communion and the form of using those prayers and respond. That's liturgy. So, so here I say all that to say, there's what these charismatics and Episcopals are there to study and talk about. And I'm like, whoa. They, I, I would have never dreamed charismatics and Pentecostals are thinking about liturgy. <clears throat> and in the context of this conference, one of the speakers was a guy by the name of Chris Say. I think it's S-A-E-Y or S-E-A-Y. Chris is actually fairly well known for having uh, translated a, a written a version of scripture. If you've ever seen it, I believe it's called the Voice. I'm pretty, I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it's called The Voice. Chris is, and Chris is a charismatic pastor, or at least was in 2014. I don't know him personally. I just listened to him at the conference. Pastor of a fairly large charismatic church in Houston, Texas. You guys are from Houston. Did you ever hear of a church called Ecclesia? Because you weren't running in charismatic circles, I understand. But it was a, it was a fairly large charismatic <laughs> It was a fairly large charismatic church in Houston, Texas. Okay, Chris was one of the speakers there, having recently released this version of the scriptures called The Voice. And what he spoke about was this, when he began to personally discover this truth about confession and the need for reconciliation and the power that it has to help people unburden themselves and, and to receive the grace of God in forgiveness, he, um, he said, we actually went out into our church and, and we fixed up a room and called it the confessional room. And he said, we put, we trained our ministers to listen to people. And it's always in confidence. Understand that everything said in, in, a, in a pastoral setting of, of would be totally in confidence. You know, I mean, incredible sacred oath, okay? Um, and he said, we bought, we bought this old confessional booth. You know, the old wooden ones, like out of an old Catholic church or somewhere, this wooden thing with the two little doors on each side and, you know, pastor sits in the middle. Now, in a lot of Catholic churches today, they don't do it that way anymore. They do it face-to-face. Okay, you sit in a chair across from each other and talk about it. Okay, and, and I was kind of, my years in the Catholic church were just as that was starting to come in. I was used to the behind-the-screen thing, you know. And, <laughs> and and it was, you know, it was somehow it was just a little more less intimidating to be behind the screen, as if Monsignor Lampe didn't know my voice. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, but but the key is they put that in, and he said so. We had it both ways. If you wanted that anonymity, and that's what you needed, you could do that, or you could do the face-to-face thing over here around the corner. I mean, droves of people came every week, every week. 
Droves of people came. Reborn through this gift. Do you know how powerful it is when someone comes, in, 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 a brother in Christ, or to, and, and puts their hand on you and says, Mark, God forgives you. You're forgiven. What a powerful thing. We need that. We need that research from our doctors, don't we? We want your, yes, this is gone. This disease is gone. Yes, this is what you, we need the research from doctors. We need it from legal trouble. We need it from a judge. We need it from a lawyer. We need research. We need it from God. And God has not left us without a voice. And that voice is the voice of the shepherd. And the shepherd is the pastor of the church who is duly ordained and called of God. Who has been breathed upon. Okay? I know this is radical. Somebody might be listening to this someday and say, that dude's not Nazarene. Pull his credentials. (laughs) Well, they can't fire me now, but they could pull my credentials since I'm not working at the church anymore. Um, I I say that jokingly um, because I'm serious about this. I'm not saying every church needs to put in a confessional. I'm not saying every person needs to go to to do this. I'm not saying that. It's not about rules, guys. It's not about rules. It's about faith. It's about experiential faith. Our faith is real. It's a faith we can touch. And it's a faith that wants to touch us. And and so I, I hope you hear the spirit in which I'm sharing all that today. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna run off to confessional. No, no, I'm just kidding. So we're we're that 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 gets us through verse 23 today. Okay. Next week we're gonna talk about Thomas and the denial, the doubt, and the restoration, all of that. That's that's where we're gonna go next week, okay? But I thought this would be enough to get through it. It took us an hour to do that, so. Shall we close with prayer? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please, please cover over anything I've said that's wrong and just let your Holy Spirit be in charge here and let the people hear what the Spirit is saying, not what Brad is saying. Lord, forgive me if I'm wrong in any way. I do never want to lead people astray. But Father, do enlighten us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lead us each day as we leave this place until we meet again. We ask this in Jesus' strong name, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry. And I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.